Yes, three of you. Guess what? So, so we, three of you, I know. Matt, it's 2018. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even pay for it, but it shows up on my, door, on my driveway every week. It's the weirdest thing. They throw a newspaper on my driveway every Sunday. And, uh, and most of the time, honestly, I'm a little bit annoyed with it because I'm like, they're wasting this. It's, you know, save the planet, whatever. But today, I was actually excited about it uh, because yesterday was Convoy of Hope. Now, um, if you got the paper, you would have seen that the front page of the journal um, is a picture of Convoy of Hope because it made the front page of our weekly newspaper at the Sabbath Journal on Sunday. And so for some of you guys, you're like, yeah, I've heard you talking about this for a while, but if you're here today and you, you aren't caught up to date with everything that we've been doing with Convoy of Hope, I'm going to do a quick recap of where we got to this point. You see, um, at the end of last year, in the middle towards the end of last year, as, as a leadership team, we were talking about and praying about and saying, God, we would love to have some sort of service project that we could do to help benefit our city. We say that we're for Jesus. We say that we're, we're for our city. In fact, at the beginning of the year, we said our theme is going to be for ABQ, which is why we have this hashtag for ABQ on the side of our wall right here, is because we want to say that we are for our city. And we were for our city. And so we started looking, is there something that we could partner with? Well, at the same time, um, God was stirring on the hearts of a couple other pastors. And, and, and this committee formed and this thing got birthed and started. And, and then we partnered with Convoy of Hope, which is a, an international organization based out of Missouri. And, uh, and we thought, what, wouldn't it be crazy if we could bring the Convoy of Hope event into our city to help bless the, the, the needy in our city? And, uh, and one thing led to another, and we said, we've got to raise all this money. I'm not sure how we're going to do it. You know, it, it's, uh, we've got to raise some funds. We had to raise nearly $100,000 uh, to be able to pay for the parts that we're going to pay for through, in our city. Convoy was going to bring um, food and some other things. And, and so we said, well, what if churches all around the city took up a special offering for this? And so we, um, as a leadership team, we said, you know what would be amazing? What if we took... Our highest, giving, our highest attendance Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, all year. High, and what if we took every dollar that came in on Easter Sunday and gave it toward the project um, for our city? And, and, and so we, we did it. And, and um, together, guys, we raised $7,000 to go toward the project of Convoy of Hope. And so I just got to say, I was blown away by your generosity. I was absolutely floored by the generosity of this church. Um, and I also want to say that it's not just in that event. I'm, honestly, I'm humbled and blown away by the generosity of our church as an ongoing pattern. You see, because of your generosity, it put us as a church in a place where we could take the risk and say, hey, what if we didn't have this week's offering? Because there's, there's enough margin in the budget that we were able to, to be able to cover the bills even if um, we had took one of the weeks out. And that's because you guys are so generous. And so I just want to say thank you to everyone here for your generosity on a continuing basis. And so we end up taking Easter Sunday's offering and giving it to the Convoy of Hope. And, um, and so then we said, well, we've got to get some volunteers together. And so we had almost 60 volunteers from our church serving at the Convoy of Hope uh, yesterday. And so I want to give you a breakdown of what yesterday did and, and the impact that we had um, on our city. So the first thing I want to talk about is the support that Convoy of Hope had. You see, Governor Martinez made a proclamation that June 23rd, 2018 is officially Convoy of Hope Day for the state of New Mexico. Mayor Keller also made a proclamation that yesterday was official Convoy of Hope Day for the city of Albuquerque. Now, we had Mayor Keller was there, there on site. Congressman Steve Pierce came in and was there on site. 
uh, the president of our city council was there on site. So our government officials were there on site. In fact, they donated the use of the convention center for this event to happen, and they don't ever do that. It was such a huge success of what happened this year. They've already committed. We're going to, if you do this next year, we'll donate it again next year because we want to see this happen. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. So here's what it took. It took 1,500 volunteers. We had 1,500 volunteers serving. We had about 5,100 guests that came through the door to receive the services that we provided. So there's about 6,600 people in attendance at the event. There was 100 participating groups. 50 of them were churches, which means the other 50 of them were people like Presbyterian Healthcare and Loveless and and CareNet and and all these different organizations, social service organizations that are around the city that aren't churches. So we saw half of it being churches and half of it being non-churches coming together under, under really Convoy of Hope is a Christian org- name. It's a Christian organization. And we got to serve the people in our city under the banner of Jesus Christ while partnering with secular industries in our city to be able to do that. Isn't that amazing? It's really incredible. We gave away 80,000 pounds of groceries. 80,000 pounds of groceries yesterday. Unbelievable. One of the things they had there was a garden in a bag where you could come by and you can grab a starter kit so you can grow fruits and vegetables in your house or in your backyard. And they gave away 1,600 gardens in a bag. We gave away shoes for children. We gave away 3,000 pairs of shoes for kids. 3,000 pairs of shoes for kids. The 280 haircuts that we gave, because we had 30 salon professionals there on site giving their services for free. And when you're in a place of, of financial need and your option is go to the salon and get your hair done or put food on the table for your kids, you'll put off the hair being done. It reminds me of the story of this, this, this lady that walked in. You see, my, my post there, the space, space I volunteered was in the information area. So after they were greeted and they walked into the front door, there was a line of people there that were the information people. And so as they walked in, um, yeah, we, we would say hi to them and, and ask them, would you, would you like me to give you a brief rundown of how this works? And almost always they said yes and, and gave them kind of the brief description of stuff. And most people were kind. Oh, thanks. You know, appreciate it. But this, this one lady stood out in particular. She came in the front door, her and her three children. What brought you in today? She's like, well, I just, I saw something. I thought I'd just see if there's something here for me. And um, so let me give you a brief rundown. Well, over here we have this, over here we have that. In this section over here, uh, we have free shoes for the kids. And, and I turn back and look at her, and she's got tears in her eyes. And, and, and she says, I, really? Free shoes, for the, free shoes for your kids? And, and she says, I haven't been able to buy new shoes for my kids in a long time. And I look down, and, and all of her kids, their shoes are just ripped to shreds. Tears are coming down her cheeks. Kids are, like, excited. They're like, free shoes. I say, yeah, well, there's more. <laughs> I look over, this is bounce houses, there's this is kid fun zone, and, and, and there's free lunch in there. Chick-fil-A uh, partnered with APS's uh, kitchen, and together they gave away 10,000 meals yesterday, hot meals ready to go for, for people to eat lunch while on site. And, and it's just incredible, incredible. And, and so, you know, the, the kids, are, their eyes are lighting up with all the bounce houses and everything else. And I'm running through the things and I say, yeah, there's a, a salon section over there. We have 30 s- salon professionals, you know, doing hair and stuff. And, and at this point, there's tears streaming down this mom's face. And, and she's, she says, I, I haven't had my hair cut in, in years. And, you know, and, 
And uh, of course, I know nothing about hairstyling, and, and so I don't know anything about that. But, but she's, she's got tears coming down her eyes and, and, she, and her cheeks, and she's like, I can't believe this. And so I was like, well, it's 100% free. I'm so glad that you came. I said, you know, there's 50 churches that are helping drive this. I said, we've been praying and praying and praying that you would come today and be blessed by this event so that you might find some hope in, in, in today. And, you know, and she's just like, blown away. And so immediately I see them go towards the shoe section. I'm greeting other people. And I, and I turn around and I'm explaining the children's shoe, shoe section to another people coming through. And I look and I see her and her kids all wearing, her, she wasn't, all of her kids wearing brand new shoes, jumping and running and just huge smiles and, and just joy, unexplainable joy coming through this whole family as they ran over to go jump on the bounce houses with, with other kids and just to play and have fun. And yet it was just a day. Yet it was just an hour or two of their time. But we brought hope to that family yesterday. I'm telling you, there were thousands, thousands of people that came through and got glimpses of hope like that. There was story after story after story of people coming through that just were blown away by the generosity of our city. Just blown away. So we gave away haircuts. We gave away family portraits. They had a whole family portrait studio with printers and everything on site, and they're taking family portraits. Because you know if you're, if you're financially in need and you can't decide, you're not going to take a family photo. That costs a little bit of money, and that money would go better towards something else. We served 72 veterans. There's 3,800 people that got prayed for in our prayer area. 3,800 people opted to receive prayer, and out of that, 102 people accepted Christ for the first time. When you read the article in the paper, it says that this was the largest charity event in the history of our city. In the history of our city. And church, you guys were part of it. Not just a little part, you were a big part of it. I'm telling you, out of 50 churches, we gave a significant amount of money. We had a significant amount of volunteers. And I just know from the stories I've heard already from other people that were volunteering and serving the impact that we had on the lives of people yesterday. And so, church, it was really amazing. And so I just want to say thank you to you and thank you to God. Thank you to saying God is doing something amazing in our city. He really, really is. He really, really is. Amen. All right. Well, whew. I almost teared up there for a second telling my, the story again. I'm just going to do that. I'm not going to read the paper while I'm up here. It's funny. Have you ever noticed that we have a lot of disorders in our country? It seems like it gets more and more by the day, doesn't it? In fact, if you watch TV, you see TV commercials about all the medical uh, treatments for the disorders. Have you guys seen that? They, have, they advertise a medical condition, and then they advertise the medicine for it. And, and then with all the people who are, I don't know, the hypochondriacs where they, they think they're sick on everything, and it just feeds the hypochondriac in our culture. And then, and then people are like, I think I have that, you know? And, and so they, they think they have that, right? I think one of our disorders as a country is that we're too busy, is that we're, we're just too busy. And, and I, I heard a commercial that had medical acronyms in it, though, and, and they don't use normal English words. We're so busy, we can't even use the full name of the disease that we're fighting. 
We have to acronym everything. It's, it's, well, if you have ABF with an ACE, then you need an ARPMTTG with an ACR. We're so busy, we can't even pronounce it all. We, of course, they have to fit it in 30 seconds, and, and they're assuming that if you have this ailment, then you know what those acronyms are. It's funny, I was listening to one of them the other day, and it says, uh, the TV commercial says, are you lonely, sad, tired, stressed? Yeah, actually. <laughs> then you need... XYZ pill. Because we're human, right? We're human. We get, we get lonely from time to time. We get sad or tired or stressed. That's, that's kind of part of living in this life. And in that commercial, they, they had a, a drug that was supposed to be the solution, but it had side effects. And you, you, you hear these commercials, and this 30 second commercial, it's 10 seconds of, are you sad, lonely, depressed? You, you need this, you know? You're dealing with anxiety? You need anxiety not, you know? And, and then the last 20 seconds are, in some cases, users experience nausea, vomiting, kidney failure, migraine headaches, and uncontrollable diarrhea. But hey, I'm not dealing with anxiety anymore, you know? So that's on the plus side. Whoo, I know. It's, it's so funny. We're so busy, we can't even handle consuming our media through one channel at a time. Now, you, now you know this happens, right? I, or I'm the only guy. Maybe I'm the only one that does this, but I sit with SportsCenter on. There are three people, like, passionately debating the draft of whatever sports thing that was happening. And meanwhile, on the side of the screen, they have what's coming up next. And on the bottom of the screen, they have the ticker thing sliding by, right, of all the different information. And then sometimes they have two tickers going on the bottom with different information from different channels. And at the same time, guess what? I'm pulling out my phone and I'm on Twitter going, huh, yeah, oh yeah, well, what'd that guy say, you know? And so I got in two screens, 18 different channels of data flowing into me at the same time. It's like I can't even consume data on on one channel anymore. It's got to be like multiple streams all coming in at the same time. Sometimes we just get a little busy, don't we? But I think busyness today is a, a bit of an epidemic, even more so than previous generations. We have more opportunity for busyness than previous generations. It seems like the world is moving faster and faster and faster. But, but here's the thing. I don't think we're too busy. I think we have too many choices to make a clear priorities. I think that's what happens. Business results from having so many choices that we can't make clear priorities. In fact, if you can get overwhelmed with information, overwhelmed with choices, sometimes you can fall into what I like to call analysis paralysis, where you have so many things to look at, you can't, I can't decide. There's a hundred different options in every which way, and I don't know which one I really want to go toward. And I can't quite decide. Or I want to do a little bit of this and 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 a little bit of this. Well, my kid wants to play in three, three different sports teams, and I got 18 kids, so I'm going to be now really busy. I'm, I'm, nobody has eight. Well, there are TV shows about 18-kid families. So. But your busyness is like an epidemic, right? We can get stuck in these things. Sometimes we have to say no to what is good so that we can say yes to what is great. Sometimes we have to say no to what is good and make room for great things. Reminds me of a story of an architect. Architect Frank Lloyd Wright once told of an incident that may have seemed insignificant at the time, but has profound influence on the rest of his life. In the winter in which he was nine years old, he went walking across a snow-covered field with his reserved, no-nonsense uncle. He pointed out 
his own tracks in the snow. The uncle says, listen, my, my tracks in the snow are straight and they're true. It's foot after foot after foot. But when I look at your tracks, you're going over here and you're going over there and you're going over here and you're going over there and you're, you're looking at this and you're looking at that. Notice how your tracks wander. It seems almost aimlessly towards the final destination. There's an important lesson in that, said the uncle. Years later, the world-famous architect, he liked to tell about his experience, and he used that story often. And he contributed to his philosophy in life. He says, I determined right there, he'd say in a twinkle in his eyes, not to miss, not to miss most things in life like my uncle had. Sometimes we can get so focused on the goal we're reaching for that we, we throw priorities aside and, and we, we get distracted or we, we get focused and we miss out on the things that God wants in our life. My hope for you today, my hope for you today is that you would prioritize something in your life so that you might have clarity of focus on where you're going. And that thing I want you to prioritize is rest. Rest, R-E-S-T, rest. It's important. Sometimes we mistake activity for achievement, don't we? Sometimes we, we schedule the rest, of our, the rest out of our calendars. When do you rest? Do you schedule it? Do you make it a priority? Or do you have a constant demand of things fighting for your time? Are you always running just a little bit behind because you can't quite get everything done that you want to get done? When do you rest? When do you recharge? Sometimes it's more important to know where you're going than to get there quickly. Do not mistake activity for achievement. So the Bible has a lot to say about rest, has a lot to say about rest. And we're going to look in our Bibles. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We are in a series called Jesus is Greater Than, and we are going through the book of Hebrews, one chapter a week. Now, we don't hit the entire chapter every week, but we're taking the theme of each chapter and as we're going through the summer. And so we're in Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. And it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You know, you don't know what rest is until you've experienced unrest. You don't know what rest is until you have experienced unrest. There's a contrast that's there. And if you haven't experienced one side of it, then you don't know what the other side of it is. You see, faith is what displaces fear in our hearts. So when we have a fear, it says in there, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The opposite of, of fear is, is faith. We are to rest in a salvation that Jesus has already achieved. Sometimes we get stuck trying to earn it, don't we? If I can do this and this and this for God, if I can behave this way or not behave that way, we try to, and God is saying, I've already paid the price of salvation. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. As to them, he's referring back, the writer's referring back to the Israelites of the Old Testament, the Israelites of the Old Testament. And and he's referring back to the, the idea of when the Israelites had left Egypt and they were headed toward the promised land. And then they're headed down that, that direction, and, and they heard the promises of God, but they let fear overtake their faith, and, and they didn't have the faith to be able to pursue where God 
was, was leading them. You see, the gospel was paralleled in the Old Testament over and over and over again. In fact, when you see that they had to sacrifice a lamb to be able to pay for their sins in the Old Testament, and Jesus was the lamb of God that paid for all of sin, for all of humanity. We see this kind of parallel over and over and over and over again. So when it goes back to looking back into as to them, he's referring back to the Old Testament saying, just like they had to do these types of of things, but Jesus paid the price so that, see, the gospel was preached in type and symbol all through the Old Testament. So if you look at the experience of ancient Israel, and he's saying, I fear that you might go down the same path, where they had, a, they, they, they had to go down the same path. He was afraid of that, if you see in verses 1 and 2. So there's a caution, there's a warning. In verse 3 it says, For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, and I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. There's a correlation between a Sabbath rest, which is in the, New, in the Old Testament, when, Jesus, when God created the, the earth, he had the seventh day and he rested. There's, there's a correlation between the Sabbath rest and a spiritual rest. You see, you can observe the law of Sabbath day and miss the work of Jesus' salvation rest. Sometimes we can almost be religious about our resting to the place where we don't actually rest because the rest becomes work. Does that kind of make sense? You see, if, if you are leaning on your own ability to create the rest, then, then you are working for your own rest. But Jesus says, listen, I'm not asking you to work for the rest. I'm asking you just to trust and have faith in me, and I will provide the rest. So verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. We could be zealous law keepers, couldn't we? Well, the seventh day, we're going to rest, and we're going to make it very strict, and we're going to have rules, and we're going to have boundaries, and, and we're going to have a religious, this, we do not do anything. And you could finally back that up and be able to say, okay, well, I can't do this, that, or the other thing, because that might constitute work. And so, in fact, in Jesus' time, the religious people were doing that. You couldn't work, you could walk this distance, but not that distance, because this distance wasn't working to get that far. But if you went Two steps further, well, now you've entered into a working distance to be able to travel. Like they started putting boundaries and, and rules and regulations around the day of rest, around the Sabbath day. You couldn't harvest grain. Well, what if you, because harvesting is work, but what if you walked by and you just picked something and ate it? Is that work? I, I don't know. There's like gray areas, and they had all these rules and regulations on which they could, they could do things. We could be zealous law keepers and miss the rest of Christ. You see, it's not about the rules. It's about relationship. And relationship is greater than religion. And there's two extremes that I see in this area. You see the law keepers are like, no, it's all about the performance of what you do. You got to do, 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 do. And there's some people that say, well, you know, you got to adhere to the law all the time. And then there's other people on the other side and the other extreme that, that say, well, Jesus is everything. And so there are no rules at all. Do whatever you would like to do. And just say, oh, yay, Jesus, in the middle of it, and you're just fine. But I want to say that there's actually a balance in the middle of that. Where it, there is a balance in the middle of that. It's not an either-or scenario. It's a both-and scenario. And so we're skipping down to verse 9. And so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Rested from his works. Referencing back to Genesis where God took a day of rest on the seventh day. In fact, that was the first commandment that God gave to his human creation, Adam and Eve. Here you go. We're Adam. You're you're now created. Now rest. We're all going to take a breather now for a day. In fact, you see a mirroring of this same thing happening when Jesus was put to death on the cross. Because Jesus died on the sixth day of the week. So he spent the seventh day of the week, the day of rest, in the tomb. And then he rose again on the first day, first day, a parallel to the creation story, to where there was a new beginning. It was a new start. There was a new covenant. There was a new path. There was a new beginning for humanity. On day six, God created man. On the seventh day, he commanded him to rest. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then verse 12, like this verse gets quoted so often inside of Christian communities and circles. It's super popular. But when you put it in context of what the rest of the chapter is doing, at first glance, it seems, huh, that's a little unusual. But, but hear me out. It says this in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Most of the time, people just quote the first part too, by the way. For the word of God is living and active. They might even drop that off. They'll just say, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. So let's go to battle. We're going to use the verses of scripture to start beating down our enemies. You know, wait a minute. If you look at this, it's in the context of finding rest. Huh. Whenever you read the Bible and something seems just a little bit out of sorts like that, it's always important to kind of like maybe pause and look, why, why would that, a battle-type verse, because that's what people think of this often, why would the battle verse be put in the middle of finding rest? Because you've got to fight for your rest. No, no, hold on. <laughs> hold on. What's the connection, right? The word of God and the warnings of God. So you go and you start looking into this thing, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Hmm. When you think about God's word and heart, there's a lot of verses that come to mind. In fact, in Proverbs, it says that God, you should have God's word tied around your heart. You should bind it to your heart. It should be something that you attach on the inside. In fact, in James chapter 1, it talks about how receiving with meekness the engrafted word of God, which is able to save your souls. The picture of engrafting is like a, a binding to. Uh, if you've ever had a skin graft in your life, you, there's a word, the skin gets grafted into your body. What good is a sword if you leave it at home? What, what good is a tool if you don't have it with you? So in the first part of this verse, verse 12, I'm going to camp here for the rest of the message and just talk about this. Number one is this, that it's living and active. It says that it is living and active. Some translations will say it's quick and powerful. Living and active or, or quick and powerful. 
Our God is a living God, and his word can't be separated from him. If we have a living God, then we have a living word from God. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, it says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You see, God's word imparts new life into our soul. It says through scripture that sinners were dead in their trespasses. Well, that includes me um, because believe it or not, I've sinned. Maybe some of you have as well. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. And that sin brought death into our souls. And the word of God is what brings life. See, sinners are dead in their trespasses, and we need the words of God to resurrect us into new life in him. And the great thing is this, is is once you put your faith in Christ and and you have him resurrecting you on the inside and your your spirit becomes alive and active again, as you continue through your your walk as, as a saint, as a follower of Christ, as someone who's already made the decision, as you continue to follow Christ, you start to see things in your life, don't you? You see patterns. I see patterns where there's seasons where I'm on fire and I, I just so passionate about God. And then there's seasons where maybe my passion starts to fade and to wane. There's a little bit of drifting that may even start to happen in our souls, doesn't it? I mean, I'm being honest. I hope you can be honest too. But there's some, some fading inside of our souls. Sometimes our passion starts to wane. We get a little bit of a drift, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Which is why we need the living and active Word of God coming into our life on the regular basis. That's why we need this. It's not just for those who are far from God. It's for those who become reunited with Christ. But once you are a follower of Christ, you need the active living word of God into your soul and into your spirit on a regular basis so that you can stay on fire, so you can stay passionate, so that, so that you don't drift. And when you start to drift, you know, you know where the source of life is. It's in the words of our living God. In the words of our living God. His word can renew and revive us. My second point today is piercing to the division. In that verse, it says piercing to the division. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division. So many of you know the Bible was not written in English. Um, This section was written in Greek. And so if you go back and look at the original language, as it translates over, sometimes the words when they translate over have multiple implications in the original language, but when you translate it over, it, you lose some of that. And so, for example, the word love. I love my wife, um, and you know, I love my pants. Completely different types of love. And, and so, but it's the same word. So sometimes it helps to go back to the original language, look at the original word, and try to expand upon it. And so this word that that they used, it it translates into sword, but also when they're talking about fishermen type things, which a lot of these guys are are fishermen in in Jesus' disciple group, right? And so this is a very common thing. It's the same knife they use when they're filleting fish. So a sword is a blunt object that you use to kill people with, right? I don't know. Never done that with a sword. Never done that, period. But never done that with a (laughs) sword. Let me clarify. (laughs) Yeah, not that kind of sinner. And so the sword, you know, you can use it to kill people with, right? But the, 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 the meat-cutting knife, the sharp blade of a fisherman's knife was used to divide carefully 
the members of the fish as they filleted it and pulled out the bones and the different things. It was a very exact tool, almost like a scalpel, if you can think of it that way, and as far as its precision and its sharp edge. And so in this context, when you read through it, it's not saying we're going to go out and kill everybody. It's saying that it's a dividing, isn't it? It's saying that it's piercing to the division. And it lists a couple different ways in which it is dividing with an exactness to it. Piercing to the division, joints and marrow. I mean, that's like the deepest part of our nature, isn't it? Like, where does the, the joint and the tendons and the, and the muscles, and, and where, is, where exactly does the muscle and the tendon start and end? It is not a blunt force sword attack that would divide that. It would be an exact cutting that would divide that kind of a separation. Hmm. Tendons and ligaments, all the meaty parts. These tissues are hidden away and they're hard to reach and seemingly indistinguishable. A sharp blade, such as a fisherman's knife, can uncover and separate these things. How many times have you been in the middle of a trying situation and, and in your own mind's eye, it's almost impossible to see where, you, where God's voice is and your voice is? How many times have you wondered, is this my idea or is this God's idea? But you see, the word of God, the living and active word of God can cut through into the even hard to distinguish areas so that you can see the line between where you are and where God is. It's a sharp, scalpel-like precision. And the soul and the spirit, it says, piercing to the division, the soul and the spirit, the completeness of a person. These things, these things seem so intertwined that it's hard to distinguish between them. Are these my thoughts? Are they God's thoughts? Or is this a good idea or is this a God idea? Because there's a difference. Is this a good idea or is it a God idea? Hmm. And it says into this, the next one is the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Exposing and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is an authoritative judge on the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thoughts refer to the emotions. Sometimes our mouths can be deceptive, can't they? Sometimes we even deceive ourselves. The crazy thing about deception is you don't, if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Otherwise, it wouldn't be deceived. <laughs> and, and so there's these, these, you don't know it, but how are you going to know it if you don't know it? It's really up to the Holy Spirit revealing it through the precision work of the words of God. Through the precision work. See, God sees the intentions of your heart. He knows your motives. You can try to cover it up with your words. You might be successful in convincing the people around you. But God knows your heart motives. And he sees through it between your soul and your spirit. He can divide and he can see through it. Huh. Third thought is this, is, is the engraftedness of, of the word of God. James chapter 1, verse 21, talks about having the word of God engrafted into you, carrying it with you. What good is a two-edged sword if you don't have it with you? What good is the word of God, the alive and active living word of God, if you just don't have it with you? I want to challenge you that as you read the word and as you study what God's word says in the scripture, God through his Holy Spirit will make it come alive to you It'll, it'll jump alive inside of you as you're reading it. 
But as you're going through life and as you encounter situations and and questionable things that I'm not sure if I should do this or that, God's word will come back to your mind over and over, not because it's something that's in a book over here, but because it's something that God has written on the walls inside of your heart. You've got to have the word of God engrafted into you. The engrafted scripture means to make it a living extension of your life so that it can produce spiritual fruit inside of you. Engrafted. It's, it's the word that sticks in your soul. It's the word that sticks in your soul. In Hebrews 4.12, says that he's a living word, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. If you leave it at home when you enter the world, what good is it? See, the enemy knows that the word that goes over your head is not portable. Which is why there might be some of you right now thinking about what you have to get done at work tomorrow morning. I got to head into the office. I got this big project and you got these thoughts bouncing around in your head. And, and if the enemy can keep you distracted thinking about other things, then the word of God won't get grafted into your mind. You're thinking about what's for lunch and and are we, should we go eat at Rudy's or what, what should we eat or Dion's? And, and, and you're thinking about the food. Now you're all thinking about lunch, aren't you? That backfired. But you know what I mean? Like it was floating over your head, right? And, and, and see, God doesn't want, you see, the enemy wants to distract you so that when the word of God, when you're reading, that's why when you sit down for your quiet time to read your scripture at home, that's why all of a sudden all those things that you can never remember, you remember. Right then and there. It's a spiritual war. That's why you grab a notepad and a pen with you when next to your Bible, not your, not your phone. Because as you're reading scripture, everybody starts commenting and you see the little post coming on your, no, no, grab, grab a Bible. I encourage you to grab a paper Bible and a pad and a paper. And when you think about this, you have a page in your book right there of your to-do list. So when things pop in your head, you write it down and you say, okay, I will get to it later. I can clear that off of my head. So now I can get the word of God engrafted into me. And you gotta, you got to have that. That's why that pops up in you. Because the enemy knows if he can distract you while you're trying to absorb the word of God, that's the most vulnerable time he has for you, that he can keep that from bouncing over your head and not getting stuck inside of your soul. And God wants it inside of you, inside of you. The enemy knows that's why he can do that. That's why you have distracted thoughts all the time. You can only use the engrafted word of God. You can't use the stuff that's not with you. Hmm. You listen to a sermon or you read the word or the Bible, you study in the Bible. It'll take a love that you didn't have, a peace that you didn't have, and a power that you didn't have, and a confidence that you didn't have, and it will graft it into your personality and into your character because we will have the love of Christ flowing through us and the confidence of God's will and ability inside of us as we carry it with us where we go and a power of the Holy Spirit everywhere that we go. Maybe nobody else in your family is nice, but all of a sudden you start finding that you're becoming a nice person. It's the engrafted word of God starting to build godly character inside of you that you start to see that. If the band would come, I'm actually going to close. See your habits and your behavior, your appetite. So if you don't see it in your character currently, I want you to understand that if you will get the word you can graft it into your character, the things that were not already there. And grafting takes time. And grafting isn't to run into church, sit on the back row every other week and never do anything else with your faith. It's not a power shot. It's a systematic thing that has to happen. It doesn't happen in a day. It has to graft. It has to connect. 
It has to become one. It has to fuse together. You can't just run in, get a quick blessing, and run out and be who you used to be the day before. See, the word has to hover over you and sit on you. The word has to become your daily bread and your appetite. It can't just be a place for you to visit on Sunday. See, hearing the word of God is absolutely life-changing. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking about, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and I'll give you rest. And in verse 28, it says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, I've learned that you're going to have a yoke, and a yoke was an oxen, a thing to tie oxen together by the neck. You and I were enslaved to something. And if you say, well, I'm not going to be enslaved to God, well, you're enslaved to something. You get to choose who your master is. The freedom that Christ brought is you get to choose who your master is. You get to choose who you're going to listen to, who you're going to obey. And Jesus is saying, listen, my, my yoke, my load is light. I want to bring rest into your soul. You've been running here and running there. You've been doing this and doing that. But Jesus says, I want to bring rest into your soul. And the sharp word of God, the two-edged sword, if you can get that engrafted into your heart, when the anxiety of the world starts to come up, you're able to take the word of God and cut through the things that seem confusing, the things that were overwhelming, the anxiety that's been building, the, the, the things that have been robbing your rest. The sharp two-edged word of God can cut with a scalpel precision to find exactly what you're doing. And you can do that anywhere and anyhow when you have the engrafted word of God living inside of your heart. Years ago, my, I got this jacked up ear and it doesn't work, but I had to have some surgery done on it to, for some things. And, and, but in that process, they had to take a skin graft from my thigh and stick it on my ear I have really nasty leg hair coming out of my ear now. I'm kidding. <laughs> so I got to tell you, when they, they took the this, this skin and they, they grafted it into my ear, and my ear was a little bit sensitive for a while. You know, I had drops I had to put on it. I had ointments. I had gauze and padding, and, and I had all these different things. I also had it down here in my thigh and, and, and a big old sensitive spot because of the, the skin graft that was removal here and putting it here. Well, today, my ear has leg skin on it, but I don't know the difference anymore because it's part of me. I could not take the skin that was from my thigh. I can't take it off and put it back on my thigh. It's not thigh anymore, it's ear. When you take the word of God and you engraft it into your heart. It becomes part of who you are, unseparable, because you've now been living on this and dwelling on this and absorbing this thing. It is grafted. When you do the grafting process through the Word of God, you start to see things happen in your life that you say, there is no way they came from my abilities. That has to be a supernatural thing that God has done in my life. God wants to do it. He's faithful for it. Will you stand as me, with me as we close?
and pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your word, both the written word of God and, and the spoken word of the Holy Spirit that quickens in our heart. God, I just, I pray for this church and for anybody who is listening or watching online, God, that, that, that this people, the people who are hearing this message today, that they would find the time and they would make the priority to be able to get the word of God grafted into them so that they might find rest with you and that they would find your burden to be light, and that they would find your burden to have meaning and, and, and purpose. God, I pray that as a body, we would embrace the pain of what grafting is, because sometimes it costs us something. Sometimes it hurts. But I believe that God wants to put something new into your spirit and into your soul, that there's a new day coming. I believe that God wants to bring a breakthrough into your life, that he wants to bring, break some things off of your life that have been hanging on and he wants to cut them off with the precision of the two-edged sword that the word of God is. Don't run from rest by busying yourself with lower priorities. Embrace the rest and see what God will do in your life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. As we leave here today, we have prayer teams that'll be on either side of the stage. They are here to pray with you and for you for anything that you might need. Come on, church, let's sing one last song before we leave. So let 